0: Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues impacting and affecting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It's the Business of Agriculture. Got a great show for you today because I got a great guest. His name is Rich Bradbury. He is a rancher in southeastern Oregon. For some reason, he doesn't dress like a rancher. Instead still wearing a cowboy hat. He wears an Oakland A's hat all the time. I don't know. Apparently, you know, he grew up seeing Reggie Jackson. I'm not sure what it's all about. But anyway, uh, Rich is going to join me today because he's a smart dude. He he educated himself online while he was working in oil fields as a young guy, and he's a fourth-generation Oregon rancher. Came back to the ranch. He has his own operation now. He started a co-op, but the reason he's on specifically beyond just talking about ranching, and beef, we're gonna talk specifically about grass-fed because I believe that that is a growth category. My numbers, and I wrote about this in my new book, Food Fear. say that grass-fed is a growth category. We'll get into that a little bit, but I want you to listen to what Rich has to say because he's doing some interesting stuff. Rich Bradbury, welcome to The Business of Agriculture. Well, thank you for having me. So, uh, what did I miss? I gave some biographicals, what did I miss?
1: I'm a big Oakland A's fan. Because of the Bash Brothers, I know the steroids and all that, but they were uh, they captured my imagination when I was a kid. And uh, one of our main markets is this Bay Area, and uh, also that I always like the Moneyball story and the Jack London stories, and I like the worker day attitude of that part of the country, and that's sort of why as an A's fan I like to celebrate that sort of unique part of our country, the part of the country that I live in right close.
0: Well, of course, you live in southeastern Oregon. So it's not like there's a, if you don't gravitate toward a baseball team, you got to gravitate toward uh, the Mariners or something in the Bay Area, because God knows there's nothing else. I'm not sure. Is there a baseball diamond within a, within an hour's drive of where you live? There's a, there's a lot of uh, T-balls, T-ball fields
1: and Babe Ruth fields, but uh, I think the nearest minor league team is probably in Reno, Reno Aces. So that's my other favorite team.
0: So, All right. So, Rich Bradbury, I said you're a fourth-generation Oregon rancher, but you've got your own operation now. And, you uh, know, for the, for those that are listening, that maybe they're uh, cranberry growers in Massachusetts, or maybe they are citrus people in Florida. Tell me about ranching out there in the wide – first off, everybody thinks of Oregon. Let me just help you out here, people, because I've worked in Oregon – only one-third of Oregon, the western one-third, looks like what you think Oregon looks like with pine trees and it rains all the time. That's the Portland and the Eugene and the, <laughs> and the Salem part of Oregon. They go over the hills to, toward the east and the eastern two-thirds of Oregon. Tell me what it looks like when you look out your window, Rich. Um, it's sagebrush, and we live right on the edge
1: of the Cascades. But where I live, no water gets to any ocean it all runs into the Carson sink or into salt lake. So, uh, the great basin is this immense, like sagebrush ecosystem. And, uh, it's possible to run, um, ruminants, cattle, goats, sheep, that kind of, those kind of animals, but it takes many more acres and it's much more seasonal type of, uh, management style. And then, uh, the valleys that we have, we find they're very precious where the water does flow, and we use that to mostly grow uh, hay so that we can make it through the winters, which are can be long and very tough sometimes.
0: Uh, last year, we had a tough winter, and we figured we lost 10% of our calf crop. Okay, now that's something that a lot of people don't realize. I mean, you, you've got these cattle are going across acres and acres and acres to get their sustenance because it's not like where I live, we get 40 inches of rain per year. Of course, precipitation, you know, we count snow. Um, you, could put, you could put one animal per acre and probably make it in my part of the world except for th- during the winter. Out where you are, you need about what, 20 acres per animal? We have a
1: um, grazing association that we run in common with, uh, with uh, six other ranches. And uh, about 3,500 3, head of cattle run in common, and that uh, acreage is about 544,000 acres. <laughs> we have uh, two full-time guys that just ride year, uh, during the summer for six months and just move the cattle around and make sure everything is good, plus all the people that have investment
0: in cattle out there also are always out there trying to help out however possible. So you're saying you got two guys that are on on a horse. I mean, truly old fashioned cowboy. They sleep in a camper. Yes. We have actually out, out camps. So.
1: They have out camps. What do you mean? There's camps built. There's like cabins built out. And, uh, the, from the time that you leave the pavement, there's a, it's a big giant circle pavement to pavement, which is around the Nevada line. It's a hundred miles.
0: Okay. And, uh, What's the idea? Do these cattle get moved, uh, they get moved uh, one mile a day?
1: No. Um, what we have, we, can't, we sort of break the acreage into quads. And uh, they sort of, uh, the, there's a, there's springs that come out. It's a permit called Base Butte, and it has uh, probably 12 different distinct springs. And instead of uh, overgrazing parts of it, they'll graze, and then they'll move those cattle. And then... What happens is they move them around, and then about two months before they got, they start need to start coming back to the valley. They'll start organizing them and bringing them back to a gathering point, and then from there we don't haul them; we drive them. So at any given time, I think they brought fifteen hundred at one time back to the valley, and then when we and get so there, everybody,
0: all summer are these are these spring calving, so these are these are cows with calves next to them. Yep. Yep. and uh that's pretty cool so then you go out and check on those guys every couple of days i assume um the way we split it up is we have a significant amount that come to
1: um little town another town outside where we ranch called lakeview and we have about three or four hundred head there and i take care of the, the cattle closer to town but if i need to i've i've spent probably 10
0: years out there doing that stuff so uh I could go do it if it need be. Okay, so here's the question. So of those animals that are out there, about what? Uh, how many of those are yours? You've got about a thousand animals total? Yeah, um, I have a thousand with
1: my customer's cattle. So I think this year we sent out about 250.
0: Okay, so in the old days, These calves uh, would, uh, well, in the really old days, they just were on grass until they were time to get driven to somewhere and go to Kansas City or something, you know, back 200 years ago. And then maybe 50 years ago, the the feed yard system kind of really got into vogue. Am I right when I say that? So about 50 years ago, it got to be the real popular thing, 60 years ago, where maybe 80 years ago, whatever, you, you, you sent them to somewhere and then they put them on feed. So the calves came off the mamas, you weaned them, uh, probably did some uh, vaccinating and some other things. And then you, they send them to a feed yard. Then in the 1980s, you bucked that trend as your family did. And you started doing more of your own specialized uh, finishing on grass. Am I right? Now, in the 80s, we,
1: uh, we sort of met the market demand, which was antibiotic-free and uh, hormone-free
0: and leaner beef. Okay. That, in the 80s, I don't remember antibiotic-free uh, being something that people cared about in the You're 80s. right.
1: You're right. Originally, what it was was they wanted a lean product with no hormones in it.
0: Okay, because RALGRO became the thing in the 80s. And then, within about five years of us using that, even on our dairy steers, uh, you started hearing and seeing articles that they're shooting these things full of hormones. So that was probably, I'm thinking, the 80s. Am I right, now? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it was in the 90s that we transitioned away from antibiotics. I mean, we use it as a life, pers- we use it to extend life. And, but those cattle can't be sold in the, the market, the different marketing, value added marketing.
0: All right, so you you guys got into the that direction. Now, lean isn't as critically important today as it was, but we still the grass fed thing is growing. So, tell me where things are now. So, um,
1: the co op that we started in the '80s, it grew very large, and um, it sells about anywhere between sixty five and eighty thousand head a year. And uh, my parents uh, were originally some of the founders of that. And they're uh, probably what you would call natural risk takers and uh, at some point uh, for an organization like that to succeed it has to become super safe for all the producers to be able to feel comfortable making it and uh, writing was on the wall that the future was probably going to be in grass-fed and uh, the co-op didn't want to make the transition so There was some other people that we'd met through that particular co-op that had uh, sort of transitioned out of it and had begun a grass-fed company. And so they asked us if we were interested in coming on board and helping them become more scalable. And uh, that's what we've been doing for the last two years. When we uh, bought into this particular co-op, I think they were selling 350 head. That was in 2000. And... um, 17 and this year we're up to uh 2000 and we think next year we'll probably do 3500 to 3800
0: so okay now there are people listening right now that are my uh, my clients in nebraska and they they love corn and they love the idea that they're going to grow corn in fact they have a football team they're called the corn huskers and the one thing oh, yeah. they love to do with corn is they'll feed it to cattle and right now they're like they're like looking at their phone saying what the hell is this guy saying the future is grass-fed no it's going to be grain-fed now I've already pointed out that I don't care what people eat, and I don't care any way you can make a living in the business of agriculture, I'm all for it. You know, people think I'm anti-organic. I'm not anti-organic. I just pointed out that some of the lobbying that happens from the industry verges on fraudulent. But other than that, uh, I think whatever a person can do to make a living. I think the grass-fed is a wonderful opportunity, and you get a premium. Of course, you should get a premium because it takes longer to produce. So tell me about that part first, the production, and then we're going to talk about the profitability. But the production is, you're taking a 1,300-pound steer to market still, or is it a little smaller? It's about 12, but um, we uh,
1: we have an interesting breed that we uh, cross with. We have a 50% cross with a breed called an Akiyushi. A what? An Akiyushi, which is a uh, Japanese variant of a Waigu. <laughs> Um, it's cross. it's a composite breed between waigu, a South Korean, uh, bovine that I cannot pronounce and a devon and a simmental. And the unique thing about the Akiyushi is it was raised on an isolated Island called Kimono, I think. Okay. And, um, the Japanese are meticulous in their, everything they do. Like if you've ever seen that Euro, uh, sushi does sushi or whatever, um, you know, they take a great pride in it, so when they bred these cattle, they, uh, their greatest resource on the island was grass. So people make fun of me for the cattle when they're born, but by the time they hit 14 months, they just turn into these monsters that just con- convert grass because that's then their genetics. And uh, it's quite the scandal because... Three doctors from Texas went to Japan and uh, managed to smuggle them out, and they got caught when they got to Galveston and they were in quarantine for seven years. And uh, that was back in the 90s, and since then they've set up a ranch in Texas called Heartbrand and they uh, raised grain fed grain-fed Akiyushis. Will be the first uh, large organization to try and do them completely on grass fed.
0: Okay. So you're, you got this wakayushi, and then you said that they were derived and they did have the Devons and the Charlay in it, or do you mix them with that? No, no. They, when they came, when they
1: came from Japan, they already had been crossbred with uh, Devon and Charlay or Simmental, I'm sorry.
0: Okay. So Simmental, give them size and frame. Uh, Devon, uh, a British breed. So there's what the Brings them some more marbling is that the idea or what's I, it, what's it bring? you know i'm pretty familiar
1: with my breeds and all i can think of that devon ever brought was disposition and milk production but
0: okay I should be wrong <laughs> okay so. well th- those are both important disposition <laughs> disposition because yeah. i've been around nutty crazy steers that uh, want to hurt me so these are calm animals and they convert grass better than than many is that what i'm hearing
1: yeah i mean it's anecdotal but um I think that as we get more understanding, like many things, we'll start learning that. Uh, and I think that we're beginning to learn this with genetics, that we, um, there's a lot of traits in different types of animals that we don't understand yet. And why we understand them on an anecdotal level, we don't have that scientific backing, but it's coming and I think we'll know for
0: sure. When you uh, then, so on the production side, these cattle are outside eating grass all the time. That's it. They, they don't go to a feed yard. You don't give them grain. You don't give them hormones. You don't give them antibiotics unless they need to be treated because they're injured or ill uh, ill. And then, and then they are on uh, they're on grass. And then <clears throat> you uh, you probably uh, a lot of them come to come to maturity all at once but probably within about three months, I'm guessing. So 15 months, 16 months, how long does it take you to get done with them? Um, it's 22 months, 22 months. Okay. Yeah. So be, and then there's some that might be a month longer and there's some, some might
1: be ready two months earlier. It's just the nature of the, the,
0: so you've got a batch that's running with their mamas and you've got another batch that was last year's crop running somewhere else. Yes. So, um, my parents are unique in the fact that, uh, we
1: had a tragedy of the common situation, and we were forced to reimagine how we ranched because we were kicked off the original family ranch. And uh, we managed to find a foothold in Nevada on a uh, mining lease. They lease the they buy a ranch so that they can offset the the mining environmental damage that they do, and so the ranch stays pristine. And so we agreed to do a, a pretty and exclusive environmental thing. So component to the ranch, took on a new partner That he does radio spectrum analysis of grasslands and forage cover and, uh, moved all the cattle there. And then had this little toehold in Oregon still because my parents owned some land independently of my, uh, family that kicked us off. And, uh, so we sort of made a balance between Oregon and, um, Pata. and then early 2000s. My youngest sister got an opportunity, and she was in the Bay Area. Her husband was uh, going to the Berkeley Range Management School. I think they call it resource management now. But uh, they got an opportunity to work with a guy named Bill Nyman, who was uh, one of the early grass-fed guys.
0: Yeah, and you can see the Nyman Ranch brand at like Whole Foods. They, it's a, definitely yep. a, a premium product, right? Yep, and so we found another uh, – large lease down
1: in the Bay Area that needed that environmental component also. And so we bid with a bunch of, we put in our bid with a bunch of people that had been um, more native to that part of the country and caused quite a stir because the environmental component, why we came in under what the rest of them were willing to pay our environmental component as far as how we were gonna monitor and change the way that that particular resource was, it was a publicly held resource it was going to be grazed and managed. We were awarded the lease and it was it was sort of controversial, but it, it's now uh I think we just renewed the lease last last year.
0: Yeah, so you were you were the lower you were the low bid, which you're supposed to be the high bid, to pick up the ground, but you guys put a clause in there that said we're gonna to adhere to these certain environmental uh conditions yes. and, and that's totally
1: totally refenced and uh redid the water and made it so the movement of the cattle, less time, it's more uh, mimicking nature than it used to be sort of this mob grazing and then these big huge fields and then they'd go through them. Now it's more fields, more movement and uh, water distributed and takes them to places where they weren't utilizing before. And part of the thing is we have to graze it so short for a particular uh, type of lizard that's endangered there.
0: And then when it gets to that length and we move on. Okay. So, you know, uh, Gabe Brown, uh, one of the uh, big, uh, proponents and uh, pioneer of regenerative agriculture was on my business of agriculture podcast here a few weeks back. And he talks a lot about, um, the moving those graziers, meaning moving those, those animals, uh, so that you take about what one third of the actual content of the, the, the grass or whatever it is and leaving the other half to two thirds, isn't that the, the right thing to do by the ground? Or what do you, what do you, what do you discovered? I'm not quite as scientific as Greg, but,
1: um, uh, or not Greg, but Gabe. As, as Gabe, but I always like to leave a little bit of car cover. I call it cover. He calls it armor. Yeah. But, um, that little bit of cover makes all the difference. And especially if you come back to it multiple times in a season, when I managed cattle in Russia, um, the growth season there was so it was uh, it was very fast, probably like where you are in Indiana. so I could I could graze and I could move on to another pasture and I could come back and I had more success the more cover I left mm-hmm. and some of the some of my American associates that were they would graze much shorter, and then they they would use further utilization of that resource later in the year but I was able to come back in the fall to a lot of mine and see a lot of regrowth and we actually uh don't cut our hay all the way to the ground we pick up the header and cut leave about six inches of cover and we usually have a residual feed when the cattle come back from the desert that we can utilize for two or three months this is uh we uh, did it this year probably left it the longest we ever had and we had an exceptional year so I'm not saying it was all us but uh yeah, this is. Uh, we have not even began to start feeding our cattle yet, and there's been snow on the ground for three year, three weeks. We just had to start feeding the heifers last week. But okay, I mean, you feed them. You just feed them hay. They just get yes, hay. Right. hay and a little alfalfa, and now they have some non-GMO minerals. So I know GMOs is a hot point for you, but it's part of our market reality.
0: Yeah, so, uh, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of the science and whether or not the GMO uh, technology uh, is going to solve the world's problems. I'm not even going to think of that, but there's a, a lot of application for it, and it just would be a crime to have a bunch of uh, protesters holding signs that wouldn't know a GMO from a UFO and listening to Gwyneth Paltrow, who's a Hollywood actress. You know as I always point out, right, <laughs> as I point out to my audiences, you've got people like Gwyneth Paltrow and the Hollywood crowd that are opposed to GMOs. There's never been one death uh, attributed to genetically engineered food crops. If you're a Hollywood celebrity, Heroin. You should worry about heroin. It kills the hell yes. out of Hollywood celebrities. Yeah, yeah. Um, that phenol and opioids are hell on people. Yeah, it is. Okay, so um, yeah. So your situation. Now let's get into the product. So you have got to make sure that your cattle. Of course, they're on grass. So there's no GMO issue there. Um, would they qualify? Do they qualify as organic? Um, I mean, obviously, you're not. You're not spraying. You're not like you're spraying out there on this rangeland. So would you be able to qualify as organic, or does that matter?
1: we have to spray in our meadows. Oh, you do. You do you yeah. have to for for weed weed control. Yeah, the the invasive weed situation. I mean, you'll hear people in regenerative agriculture say that you can control it all. Well, you can control it all if you don't have to control 60,000 continuous acres at one time and all your neighbors. Okay. I mean, no, we don't have 60,000, but we have a we start, we start 260 miles of canals with uh 12 other ranchers. So, um, we are fought uh, every lease that we get, we are constantly on um, battling weeds and there is not enough people. I mean, there's not, can't find enough minimum wage workers to go out and chop all the weeds.
0: That, yeah. So you, so you do use herbicide. So your cattle, of course, it's not like you're spraying the cattle, you're just spraying the meadows and taking care of the weeds. Yeah. So your cattle-
1: and We do, we do it isolated and targeted. I mean, we, we don't go crazy with it, but I mean, in the West weeds are a reality that we we're very much trying to get ahead of and we've done a good job in this particular county and uh the county next to i i, I don't want to go over that but yeah it's a battle we're trying to find a better solution but it's just the reality of the situation that we live in
0: all right so you feed these animals during the winter because you got snow on and there's no there's no vegetation you're feeding them hay and then uh you you buy any sort of minerals and whatnot it has to be uh uh you know as natural as possible. Then these cattle go to a place, you have a contract with a processor. You don't own your own processing, but you have a contract. So these 2000 this year, and you're going to keep growing this animals go to the processor. And then do you own the brand? Do you own a, a, a consumer brand?
1: Yes. We own uh, desert Round beef. And uh, we also own a brand called country natural beef, which would be a feedlot, the natural product. But yeah, we own the both brands in a co-op. Uh, business model so one has over 100 ranches in it and the newest one the desert the grass-fed company has about 22 ranches in it right now
0: okay so when you eat okay what's the one that's the this grain fed country what uh, it's called uh, country natural beef Okay, country natural beef if you take a piece of if you if you open up a a steak that says country natural and you compare it to a desert mountain grass fed can you taste the difference yes and I, I, I imagine most people can. I could. I like steak, and I can tell a difference. Yeah. I think everybody can? Yeah. The
1: the Akiyushi um, marbling is a totally unique type of taste. Uh, I think people don't like this particular word, but I think it's a little gamey but buttery at the same time. So you get a real sort of uh, unique flavor profile when you eat Akiyushi. And an okay. Akiyushi yeah. cross. Plus, you also have the range component of it, all these cattle. So my cattle, particularly, eat in uh, the sagebrush microbiome, which is grasses, ancient grasses that are under these sagebrush that have been unchanged for hundreds of years. And then I think a lot of them go on to timothy pastures and just just not very altered type of. I'm not. What I'm saying is it's just a, uh, just different because of the way I think that they move about throughout their life throughout the supply chain. And the stress level is a lot. it changes significantly. I mean, you don't have the stress of, uh, stress changes the profile of the meat flavor. Yeah, it does. They talk about dark cutters and stuff. And, um, that's one of the things that we really think about a lot is the, uh, I'm not trying to say this in a corny way, but we focus a lot on low stress handling that kind of stuff. Uh, I just picked up some calves from a guy that never run our cattle before. And uh, you can basically walk into the krill and move them without hollering at them into the the alleyway and they'll walk right onto the truck. He said he'd never had any cattle that react like that. And it's nice to have cattle that handle that way, but the economics of it is so much. uh, You can save a lot of dollars and cents when you have cattle that behave in that particular manner.
0: Well, because they're good gainers. And, you know, I know that when we've had uh, a crazy one, uh, they, they, they don't, they don't gain well because they're, they're high, high strung all the time. Plus they injure you. (laughs) Yeah. 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 There's that. Uh, So you've got these uh, these grass fed and then they go to the processor. Who handles it from there? Are you the guy that's the front line? Are you the one that's getting it on store shelves? How are you going to market? Actually, I'm going to fly up to Seattle
1: this week and we're going to talk about building a carbon program. With uh, one of our, uh, we're trying to add a carbon component to the marketing of
0: our grass-fed beef because it's it's a it's the new thing that's coming down the road. So uh, I agree with you, and I want to hear more about that because I point out that grass-fed's opportunity is that a we have marginal land that's not going to be necessary to grow corn. People don't like hearing that, but you know if you've got rocky, highly erodible, or dry, crop, you know, as I point out. When you fly over those Western states and you see big circles and you're like, eventually the environmentalism is going to say, why did we just drain the Agalala aquifer to grow corn in Western Kansas when we've got more corn than we need in Illinois? <laughs> yeah. Um, so those grounds, those lands can become grass and can be, so grass fed has a real opportunity with marginal land, uh, being replaced with grass. I think grass fed has a real opportunity because of the environmental benefit. You know, you say, Hey, there's grass on all this property. That sequesters carbon. If you're really concerned about this climate change, we're out here sequestering carbon. And then what are you doing with this carbon thing that you're talking about? So there's a group in Seattle that, (coughs) excuse me, that,
1: um, They're setting up an exchange and the carbon, the carbon sequestration I always thought was sort of a dream that lots of people, I got a little tiff with a guy a while ago that's been working on it 30 years. I said, I'm not waiting. on you to work, work work on it for 30 years. I'm just going to forge ahead. I said that everybody's been telling me since I was a kid, we're going to get this carbon payoff. Yeah. Well then two weeks later, I met these guys that are just going to do the exchange. So they're going to set up the way to verify that you have the carbon and they're going to, set up the people that need to buy carbon and that's all they're going to do they're just going to be the like the Nasdaq of the carbon exchange okay and however that works for us to be able to say with our beef that we offset the footprint of producing it and maybe of the store that is selling it that's a huge thing and whether we receive any money for that carbon storing that carbon or not and uh, that's a whole nother story that there's a whole customer base that wants to hear that. And that's a big part of the regenerative movement. And uh, farming gets a lot of focus on it because that's where the biggest bang for the buck is because you can, you, can, you can bring more healthy soil to bear in a soil that's been completely depleted by using regenerative agriculture practices. My argument is these rangelands are already packing a huge load of the carbon. And every year with the ruminants working on them, the cattle or the goats, they're pulling more and more. Now the question is like when uh, that Cape Brown podcast you did, we're, we're starting to explore just how far our rangelands and ranch lands are pulling that carbon into the ground. And we're thinking that we might be as deep as uh, five to seven feet. Okay. Especially in the Timothy, we're finding out is an amazing, it can swing a field that has been farmed, um, that's been furrowed or farmed, plant Timothy in it, and it can improve the the carbon sequestration, organic matter, uh, nitrogen cycle, and total soil health by like 3% in less than a year
0: yeah so that's a real good story to tell and to sell so now let's talk about then the product is that when i go to the store and um, somewhere up in the northwest where your product is what am i going to see on that label is it going to say uh desert mountain grass-fed beef offsets this much carbon is that what the idea is we want to do it right i mean there's a lot of people that i've found
1: i went to i've been going to uh regenerative earth summits and uh, uh, grass-fed exchange conferences and everybody has a plan as how they're gonna do it. But my struggle is, uh, we have a, one of the, our partner that partnered with us in California and partnered with us and uh, he's one of the foremost grass guys in the United States. And it's not just about carbon, it's about uh, your organic matter, um, organic nitrogen, your um, forage coverage, how much that fluctuates during the year. So what we want to do is we want to build a comprehensive picture of what the soil health is, and carbons is going to be a component of that. And right, there's a lot are- of people out there, I, I just want, I have this soapbox, there's a lot of people out there that say they're going to do it, and they're getting a lot of money to do it, and they are, a, are not the landowners, they're not making the investment, and they don't have the cattle. And they're uh, and then they're going to come back and they're going to charge the ranchers to tell them how to do it. They don't know how to do it. And I want to get ahead of that. And I want our co-op to be one of
0: the leaders in uh, how this system gets created. Right. All right. Now, speaking of then the product. OK, you're moving this and you're growing. The grass fed stuff is growing and you make more money on it you, you sell it for more. Do you make more than the traditional? Uh, does, is it making you more? I know you sell it for more because you have to cause it takes 22 months instead of 16 or 17 months, let's say for a, a traditional. This is a great question. This is the new mentality that you have to have in
1: agriculture. We are in a, we're in a startup type of, uh, approach and how we're going to change the world. And, uh, we, uh, the first kit bunch of cattle we felt fall through the program it was probably bro- It probably broke even. The returns were the price that we got at the end were greater, but the transportation, the time they spent on grass, and the actual sickler motion of how cattle graze. Yeah. So you can't push a cow and ha- or a calf and have him gain three or 2.7 pounds a day. There's going to be lulls in that animal's lifestyle where they just do compensatory gain and they're going to plateau for a while. And that's where, when you're in the feedlots, they're adding different things. They're changing the way that the animal naturally acts. What we need to learn, or we need to go back and relearn, is how to raise that animal and expect those plateaus and manage for those plateaus. Maybe be on a less costly feed when he's at that plateau. And when we need to have him on a hotter feed that he's going to grow when he's ready to grow. So um, in the winter, I'm... uh, I'm gonna play with two different scenarios. I'm gonna keep some here in the valley, and just feed them the way I feed my cows, and then some of them will go down to California on the green grass. So I'm gonna see how much different, uh, if that, if they had compensatory gain, if those compensatory gain cattle that were here, wintered here, when they get in green grass, if they'll catch up with their siblings or their pair, their pairs or different pod cattle that they were they were raised with, if they'll just catch up to them naturally, so we have a lot of unanswered things. And so if I'm going to say that we, uh, if we got it all figured out, that would be a lie. But we're in this for, this is a long-term play. And we, right now we're producing fresh grass-fed beef and fulfilling the market 24-7 year-round. And there's not many grass-fed companies that can say they do that.
0: Yeah. All right. So you think that this is a growth category and I think it's a growth category because the math says it's a growth category. In my book, Food Fear, the only thing is I had a hard time getting good numbers because, you know, some categories are so mature. Like, for instance, I know for a fact that the United States of America per per person ate 57 pounds of beef this year. That number I know. I've got a great uh, meat chart, you know, I know that we ate 94 pounds or 90, yeah, over 94 pounds of chicken. I know those things, but on the grass fed thing, it's kind of like, it's still not that mature. So tracking it, one, one thing that I read says that, you know, we're, we're doubling our consumption of grass fed meat every year. And another one's more than that. So what's your read? I think we're about two to
1: 3% of the overall beef market and i think that isn't i think that the meat. i think that despite all of the fear in the marketplace right now i think hamburger sales are still growing year after year It's not yeah really, probably the, the overall meat industry is not really slowing down so i mean even if grass fed is making some gains the rest of the industry is growing along with it so we could probably push it i mean maybe it'll never be much more than 8% of the market maybe it'll get up to 10 or 15 but there is a diehard. I think the, the important thing to talk about in Grass-Fed is the type of customer that you're, you're talking, a high-medium income customer. You're talking a high-medium educated education. You're talking about people that are, uh, are ideological. They, they don't buy beef for substance. They buy it for many different reasons.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, what you're talking about there is you've got what I talk about environmental eating. It's one of my big subjects that increasingly affluent countries like the United States, you know, food is not just uh, survival. It's a social statement. It's a religion. It's a it's a topic, sometimes a topic of debate because people want to control what you eat. But on stuff like grass fed, there's this feeling. That these people are paying for. Like it tastes different, but more importantly, it was environmentally more naturally. You know, it's natural for cows to eat grass. It's not natural for them to eat, uh, you know, ground feed. So there's that component. So that that only grows, but um, yeah, does it end up being 15% of the market? Yeah, I could see that. Do I see it being uh, the majority? It's going to be a while.
1: No, no. I don't, it could be a long time. And I, I think there's two things I pick up out of that. Is uh, we're sort of a unique position. We are a first world country. And uh, this regenerative movement can only take hold in a place like United States, the Netherlands, Australia, New Zealand. But I think it's a good practice because I think that there's a lot of things that's going to come out of this movement that's going to raise the tithes for everybody, including people in third world. So why I'm out here on the fringe doing grass-fed, I think the stuff that we're gonna take away and learn from this is going to ultimately help a greater number of people, even if it doesn't end up in being grass-fed beef. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about our market is I'm gonna meet my customers. I'm gonna to go to a meat counter this weekend and I'm gonna to talk to my actual customers. How many people
0: in conventional beef do that? And, yeah, well, of course, the argument would be, well, how can I, you know, how how could I do that when I, my stuff goes to a Cargill plant in Dodge City, Kansas, and how how could I possibly know who my customer is? So yours uh, is a matter of you're a little you're a little more local and you know where your product is, but it's a good practice. And I say this all the time, that one thing that we are amazing at in agriculture is production. You know what we're not really good at is understanding <laughs> the, the marketplace. I mean, we understand how to sell the stuff, but we don't understand our consumer very well. We don't understand. If you want to ask that person, Rich, a question, hey, I'm the guy that produced this. Me and 17 of my uh, fellow ranchers, we formed a cooperative. I really appreciate you. But they will come, they'll probably talk to you for 20 minutes because of what that does for them.
1: I got to tell you a quick story about the regenerative Earth of it and I'll try and make it fast. Um, it was a two day, three day event. We had uh, fortune 500 leaders there. We had all sorts of different types of people there and every panel was just packed full of amazing intellects and, uh, people doing amazing things. The producer panel ran overtime by 30 minutes and made some really big wigs really mad. They were storming out of the auditorium. And when the producer pounder got over, people stood up and applauded for like five minutes and rushed the stage taking live video with the producers. No (laughs) other, no other panelist group got that type of attention and that that's how primal people's instincts around food are. And some people are more in touch with it than other people. But the interesting thing about the product that we sell in agriculture is people have a, it's it's embedded in them. So they're going to find it there. The scarcity is more real. Everything's more real. Everything that people write that scares them is more real to them. And to have that common touch back to the person that's raising the food is uh, extremely critical. And uh, why people say, how can I do it? I, I would argue, how can you not get out and talk to those people? Those are the people that are your lifeline. And those are the people that are going to be your advocate when, and I'm going to tell you, there's actors in all movements that are trying to take that final, that the, they're wheeling down on the amount of money that gets back to the resources. Plenty of people in line to take the pennies and the dollars out of that retail sale.
0: Yeah. Well, there's that. The thing is you're going more uh, direct and you know, it's the old thing uh, you and I both have been around this business long enough that when I was a kid and I still have it, you go to the farmer's breakfast where you get your breakfast for 14 cents because for every dollar spent on uh food, only 14 or 15 cents goes to the farmer. And then we're supposed to feel bad. And here's the thing. And I know that it's not popular for me to say to my agricultural people, but here's the reality. The dollars go to where the value is added. And okay. so, uh, you know, it's 15 cents is, is not, I didn't make it up. I'm not being mean. It's just, those are the economics of it. And if you now take on uh processing and you take on some value added, uh, where you're getting it in the hands of the consumer, then your 15 cents goes to 45 cents. And so why would we not try and do more of that as an industry? Again, it's thinking beyond just production and what you talked about with consumers. We say this all the time. We've got to educate the consumer. I'm like, maybe instead we should just understand the consumer you know we work for them (laughs) you're going to go and find out some of these people are going to have they're going to love you they're going to hug you some are going to bitch at you uh but you're going to learn all that you're going to learn about the consumer and they're very you'll you'll find
1: that uh, people i think have fear about visiting with the consumer because uh I think it's perfectly taught because of all this education that they're getting from other sources besides outside agriculture and the mistrust of agriculture. When you're physically standing in front of somebody, that whole dynamic changes and that fear and the trust. The trust is established and the fear just sort of fades away and they're like, this is somebody I can relate to. I understand that they are telling – they default to truth. They know that the, that what we're doing for them, we're trying to do our best to get them the very best product possible. And once they see you do, they see you in person, they understand that that's the case.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's the, <laughs> all right. I don't want to stay here all day. We've already gone pretty long because you've got a good story and you got good stuff to say. Where do we go from here? I'm, I want to encourage
1: everybody to, uh, and they're more than happy they can reach out to me. I want to, encourage more ranchers to start forming co-ops, even if it's natural co-ops, just selling the very best grain fed beef that you can find. But um, don't farm out the process of the co-op to somebody, work together within the group. Ranchers, one of the worst things I can, I hate to hear from a rancher is to say that they're not a business person. I think ranching is one of the hardest businesses in the United States. There's a, multiple things that people have to balance. And to sell yourself say so you're not a business person is, uh, I think, sad. And I think that more ranchers need to take part of that middle part of the supply chain and take control of that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I'd like to see the packers become like uh, uh, service companies rather than playing such a big part of the game.
0: Yeah, you, you want to see it to where the production becomes beyond just production. You believe let's take on more roles, add more value, and instead of just being out here as a price taker, we could be a little bit more of a price maker. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. And
1: uh, get out there and talk to the customers, engage with people. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that are desperate to do something in the agriculture space, and they're going to come whether you like it or not, so you might as well get out there and get ahead of them rich last question
0: five years from now i know my opinion and it's based on research and numbers five years from now does impossible meat and beyond meat outsell grass-fed meat five years from now i'd say they're neck and neck in five years i'd say they are probably not going to be neck and neck i think that grass-fed will continue to pick up more share because of the natural story. And I think that Impossible and Beyond, don't ever get beyond a few percent of sales of total meat consumption only because I think that the pro- the, ant- the movement against processed foods, since those are so processed. When the Whole Foods founder came out there, you know, a couple months ago and said, this is not a whole food, it's a processed food. I think that that's gonna be more sentiment five years from now. You think neck and neck, I say less. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to hear you that, and
1: I think around the hype of it all, I'm sorry for coughing through this whole thing and trying to get all the hype of it all is you forget the craftsman in it. No product, I, the if you think of the cheeseburger, it's the pinnacle of everything that we've created in culinary arts. It's savory to the nth degree. You cannot replace that. It took hundreds of years to get the bread just right. It took hundreds of years to get the beef just where it is the cheese alone has a lot of talent and discipline that goes into it you cannot come in with a product and in two years just replace that that evolution of that product that savoriness and I know it's a fad but you can't replace the knowledge and skill that go into developing something like that in a couple years
0: I don't. Yeah. Think so. I, I think I think you're right. That the, the cheeseburger didn't happen as quickly as the beyond and impossible one did. And they might need more time, but I also think that over time what'll end up happening is it'll be viewed as processed food, uh, and that's going to work against them. All right. His name's Rich Bradbury. He's a grass-fed beef uh guy. He's got his own co-op, Desert Mountain Grass-Fed Beef. If anybody wants to learn more about you or check you out, where do they find you? Uh LinkedIn. I'm uh on LinkedIn so yeah, uh, very active on LinkedIn and you just find him under rich Bradbury on LinkedIn right yep and
1: uh, it's not Michael up it's uh, there's a great story behind it and check people to go check it out so I'm just a little player in it and uh, there's a lot of guys pulling a lot of, doing a lot of different amazing things and uh, love to talk about it more but uh, I appreciate the time that uh, you gave me so far and I, I really appreciate your book that you have coming out I'm uh, excited to get in and read it
0: Well, I appreciate you being on here. No, man, I think it's cool what you guys are doing up there. So uh, check him out, Desert Mountain Grass-Fed Beef. Uh, Find Rich Bradbury on LinkedIn. He puts out some clever commentary. He's obviously – you know, the word advocate gets overused, right? Oh, I'm an advocate. By the way, I hate the word advocate. It's not really a word. But he's not an advocate. He's actually – a promoter, I think is the better thing. He's out there saying, Hey, you know what, here's what we can do. Here's where we can do it better. And here's what we're doing right. And, and here's what we're doing wrong. I like that about you, that you're, uh, you're saying here's, this is a business. And, and I like the fact that you said, we're looking forward. Yeah. And I
1: think that, uh, show the truth. The customer thinks the customer automatically already doesn't trust. Most customers are already a little bit leery. So the response when you just tell your story. And you talk about telling stories all the time and uh just tell your story, man. Get it out there. And it's so easy in the modern day to do it. And people are so responsive to it, and you're gonna learn so much. It's been an amazing journey that I've been on since I've started doing it intensely and uh it's well worth
0: it. And I think you probably back that up, but I do. All right. Thanks for being on here, Rich Bradbury. Thank you. All right, till next time, it's the Business of Agriculture.